We're going to continue this morning in the Gospel of John. We are heading with breakneck speed towards the close of uh, this Gospel. Um, Last week was really a crescendo moment in which Paul walked us through Jesus' crucifixion and his death. I have the pleasure of finishing out chapter 19 today as to what happens in the aftermath of Jesus's passing. But before we get to the text, if you would join me in prayer, let's pray that God would meet us here this morning. God, thank you so much for this story that we can walk through, the story of your faithfulness to your world and to your people. And the way that faithfulness was demonstrated in the life and in the death of Jesus. Today, we look at his burial where he was laid in the grave. God, we know that the punishment that was laid upon Jesus was not one that he had earned, but the one that we had. God, I pray that this morning that the Spirit would convict us of how we've participated in that. God, I pray that the Spirit would meet us and that the words that I've prepared would be more than interesting tidbits or nuggets, but would be things that would actually inspire and convict and change our hearts. God, we want to be faithful like the men that we find in this story today are faithful. God, we pray that uh, this place would be a place that is known for wading into places of hurting and difficulty. God, we thank you for your spirit that has made these truths known to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we, we finished. Uh, if you, if you want to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, if you have an app, uh, if you don't have a physical Bible, I just want to invite you. This is something we mention from time to time, but we have uh, Bibles that we can give you for free. If you make your way over to the Commons to the bookstore, we'd love to get you one. Obviously, uh, having a paper copy is nice. Uh, apps work well, too. But you can follow along with us in John chapter 19. We're going to be in verse 38 through the end of the chapter. Uh, and if you would like, you can actually just follow along because all the words will be here on the screen as well. So let's uh, pick it up. We actually wrapped up last week with Jesus making a declaration that is absolutely dramatic and overwhelmingly encompassing of the mission that Jesus was on when he declares, as he breathes his last, it is finished. And it's right there at that place when that dramatic moment happens that we pick up our story. The next thing that occurs here is in John 19, chapter 38. The text says this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. So a few things I would love to deal with here. The first one is, who is this guy, Joseph of Arimathea? He really is only mentioned a few times in the Gospels, in all four of the Gospels. He only comes up a couple of times. And here is really this key moment when he shows up on the scene and gets to work. Uh, He's designated as Joseph. And then, as is common, you would have heard uh, Jesus of Nazareth. It was very common to refer to someone by their birthplace, where they came from. The trick with Arimathea is we don't actually know for sure where Arimathea was. It's one of those cities that was lost to history. Most scholars believe that it is a town uh, to the west of Jerusalem and that it would have been the same town that Samuel, the prophet from the Old Testament, was born in. Joseph does something incredible. We, we spent some time in the last few weeks looking at this uh, confrontation with Pilate and the Jewish leaders 
And Joseph now, after Jesus has died, comes to Pilate. He comes back to Pilate's, um, what do we call that place he lives? A palace? Let's call it a palace. He comes to Pilate's palace and he approaches Pilate and asks him for permission to take Jesus's body. Now, why would Joseph do this and who is Joseph? Because it tells us that he was a follower of Jesus, but he didn't want people to know about it. He kept it secret because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now, Joseph, we do know from other texts in the Gospels, was actually a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, when we talk about the Jewish leadership that oversaw Jesus being brought to Pilate and being convicted and crucified, that would have been led by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, to put it in modern terms, would be kind of the equivalent uh, of the um, Supreme Court if you combine the Supreme Court with the White House as well. Because in Israel, they actually fulfilled both of those roles. These were the judicial, the legal, and the authoritative rulers over the nation of Israel, even though their actual rule was submitted under Caesar and the Roman Empire. These would have been the guys in charge. It was a large group. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30-some men would have sat on this, and these would be the senior most religious leaders in the nation of Israel. Joseph was one of those guys. So when it says that he was a follower of Jesus, but he did it secretly because he was afraid of the Jewish leaders, what it meant was he was afraid of his friends. He was there as they confronted Jesus over and over again in the year leading up to this moment. He was there listening to Jesus' teaching. He was there listening as the tension ratcheted up amongst those leaders and they were convinced that they needed to get rid of him and ultimately kill him. And what this tells us is that the entire time Joseph is listening with a sympathetic ear and hearing what Jesus is teaching. But he doesn't want to let anyone know because he doesn't want to lose his position his prestige. He doesn't want to be kicked out of his team. And so he keeps quiet about it. In this moment, he does something incredible. He approaches Pilate's palace. Now, we talked a few weeks back, if you were here, about Pilate and the, how uh, frustrating this was for Pilate that he had to deal with this issue at all. So the, the courage that it must have taken for Joseph not only to go against his team, the Jewish leaders, to approach Pilate's palace, but also to bother Pilate again about this issue of Jesus, took incredible, incredible courage. And it says that with Pilate's permission, they came and took the body away. Now, the question that you have to ask is, why doesn't it tell us more about what happened here with Pilate? We had this long section in chapter 18 in particular of this interaction with Pilate, and here we have it. They came back to Pilate, and he just says, yeah, go ahead. That seems a little unusual. Well, one of the other gospels fills in a little bit of the gap here for us. We can go to Mark chapter 15, where it tells this same story from another perspective, and it says, when Pilate gets the request from Joseph, what he says is, is he already dead? Then Pilate wondered if he was already dead. After all, it's only the afternoon. If you remember when we talked about the crucifixion and the crucifixions that Rome would enact on rebels, those deaths would sometimes take days before the person would actually die. And here we are just in the late afternoon of the same day in which Jesus was tried, beaten, hung on the cross, and now this guy is back at the palace saying, can I take his body? And Pilate says, is he really dead already? So he summons his centurion, or soldier, and he says, has he already been dead for some time? 
And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. It's interesting to me here that Pilate's concern is not whether he's dead, but whether he's been dead for a while. And you might say, well, that's kind of a weird thing to ask, has he been dead for a while? I think the very thing that uh, Pilate is concerned about is the same thing that people would claim about Jesus, that they were going to try to fake his death. Pilate says, well, I'm not going to rush this thing and let them take Jesus's body when he's still alive and then suddenly I have this problem to deal with again. I already ran the gauntlet of dealing with this situation and we've convicted him to death. Let's make sure the guy's actually dead and I don't have to deal with it again. And when he gets word back from his soldier that Jesus has been dead for a while, he says to Joseph, sure, do what you'd like with his body. It says that Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. It picks up a story that we have in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus, who is also part of that same Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus under the darkness of night because he's so intrigued by what Jesus teaches, he wants to ask him more questions about it. But why would he come at night? Well, the same reason that Joseph didn't want anyone to know that he was actually a follower of Jesus. Nicodemus understood that if he showed sympathy and following Jesus, he was going to run into trouble with his compadres in the Sanhedrin. And so he goes at night. And here, Nicodemus and Joseph have a little conspiracy brewing. They get together and they come. And it says Nicodemus doesn't come empty-handed. Nicodemus comes with a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Aloes, you might have a little bit of a context for, right? You have some aloe vera lotion that you put on or something that helps you with healing and soothing the skin. That makes sense. Myrrh, you probably don't have any clue what myrrh is. That's okay. I didn't either. Myrrh shows up at one other very significant time in the scriptures, and it's when the wise men visit Jesus early, early in his life, and they bring him gifts. And one of the gifts that they bring him is myrrh. What the heck is myrrh? Good question. Uh, I'm a camper. I love camping. And I, uh, my favorite kind of camping is hammock camping, which means I sleep in a hammock at night suspended above the ground, comfortable and warm. It's wonderful. But when I camp in northern Arizona, one of, in order to get your hammock up, you have to put your straps or your ropes around a tree. And usually that's a big, giant pine tree. And every time I'm there, I have to deal with a little bit of uh, struggle. <laughs> Mainly, those pine trees are real big, and my arms are not that long. And so I'm by myself trying to figure out how I'm going to get this rope, this strap around the tree. And what typically happens is I'm straddling this tree for an uncomfortable amount of time. And when I come away, what do I find all over my shirt and my arms and my hands? Sap from that pine tree. I'm sticky, and my hands smell like a pine forest for the next two weeks. That stuff will not come off. You can't wash it off. Well, guess what? In some way, that's myrrh. Myrrh was, is derived from a plant that exists in the Middle East, uh, and they would produce it by cutting a tree, and the tree would leak sap out of that wound, and then it would become hardened, and they would gather it off. And because it was super, super fragrant, they would use it as a base for medicines and perfumes. And if, as you can imagine, that process of producing that myrrh is very 
uh, labor-intensive and takes a long time. It was extremely valuable stuff. Now, what it says here is that when Nicodemus arrives, he brings this very expensive salve and the aloe, and he doesn't bring just a little bit. He doesn't bring a small jar. He brings 75 pounds of the stuff. I picture Joseph saying, hey, Nicodemus, bring, bring some stuff so we can be ready to go. And when he shows up dragging these giant barrels, it's like a little bit of overkill here, buddy. But here he comes. He's prepared for this moment. They've been talking about what's going to happen right here. And they show up. And it says that they take Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. I, I need to... I need to enforce for you how unusual this situation is. First of all, anyone who would have been crucified would have been considered accursed in the Jewish faith. There are texts in the Old Testament that say that a man who is hung on a tree is accursed. It is already a massive hurdle that they are stepping over to take this body that they would have seen as being cursed by God in this, and taking him on. Not only that, these men are highly acclaimed religious leaders. Most likely, they're old men. To be a part of the Sanhedrin, you would have been a senior member of religious leadership in Israel. Most likely, we're talking about guys who are in their 60s or 70s, and they are out there physically dealing with this dead body, the two guys, and taking his body lovingly down from the cross and preparing it for burial. They would have dunked those strips of linen in these aloes and the myrrh, and they would have wrapped his body gently as they went, as was custom. Now, it says this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs, but there is something that I think is significant here to mention before we move on. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe was not considered part of Jewish burial custom. That is a very rare thing. If the average person died, a family would have lovingly taken their body, they would have washed it, and then wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb. These two men do something that would have been unusual. They bring very valuable, very expensive materials and wrap his body in it. Jesus is not getting a pauper's burial. He's getting a royal burial. This is the kind of thing that would have only been done for a king. And these men are now taking his body down off of a cross to wrap it in this way. And it says that the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden nearby. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid and because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since that tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now you say, well, okay, I don't, Jewish day of preparation, what does all that mean? Uh, the Sabbath was coming at sunset of this day. And for the Jewish follower of God, Sabbath was absolutely holy. And there were a vast amount of restrictions on the kind of work that you could do on the Sabbath. And so, as you can imagine, if you had to, when you're getting ready to take a vacation for the week, what does the week before the vacation look like? Chaos, right? You've got a million things to do. You've got checklists. You've got to get ready because you're going to be taking a week off of work. So every single week in the Jewish life, you had a day that looked like that week in your life, and they called it the day of preparation. Because it's like, tomorrow we're doing nothing, that means I gotta do double today. 
today's the day of preparation. We're going to get ready. So when uh, Joseph and Nicodemus come, to, come down to Jesus' body that's being hung there, they're going to do work, but they need to do it and finish it before the sun is down because then they will be breaking the law, which they will not do, so they're hustling. They're hustling to do this before the sun sets. And there's a garden right there. And in the garden is a tomb that no one has ever laid in. And they put him in here. Now, what this text does not mention, but another one does, and we'll come back to it later, is that this tomb is actually Joseph's own tomb. Joseph himself had purchased and prepared this tomb for his body. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know people... uh, that as they get closer to the end of their life, they begin to make preparations for their own death. They will fill out forms and booklets to talk about the things that they want at their funeral. They might go to pick out a nice cemetery where they'd like to be laid. They might buy a plot of land there in that place. These are consecrated decisions that are made in light of the fact that we are mortal and that our lives are coming to an end. Joseph has done that for himself. He has bought a tomb. He has paid to have it carved out. And it has been left empty because when he dies, he is going to get a royal burial himself in which he's given a place of honor and laid in this tomb. Because in the Jewish tradition, what you would do is you would wrap the body and the body would be placed in a cave, a tomb, And then for a year or so, that body would decompose in that cave. And after about a year after the decomposure had happened, you would come back to the tomb and you would remove the bones that were left behind. And then you would put the bones in what you would typically think of as a coffin. They would call it an ostuary box, a bone box. And it would be a much smaller box in which the bones would be collected. Usually, if you had money and influence, your name and something about you would be on the side. And then they'd put that in the cemetery, leaving the tomb ready for the next part of your family who died so they could decompose in that place as well. It's in that tomb that Joseph takes Jesus' body and him and Nicodemus wrap him And then they bring him to the tomb and place him inside. And they're doing it in a hurry because the sun is setting as we go. This is all happening very quickly. If you remember, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate at the break of dawn. And here we are as the sun is setting. And these men are putting him in this tomb. Just to give you a picture, uh, this is not the tomb of Jesus. Um, Depending on who you believe, uh, either we don't know where Jesus was buried Uh, That's option one. Or uh, it's actually underneath a church in Jerusalem right now, the um, chapel, it's the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And you can go down inside where they have a place where they claim was the place where Jesus was laid. This is not the place where Jesus was laid, but it is a good picture of what it would have looked like. It would have been a cave, probably a naturally occurring a cave that you then went in and carved out even more. And then there was a slot in front of it that was carved like a little channel in which a large rock like this would sit. And it was done this way for a couple of reasons. Number one, once you put the body in there, that body would begin to decay very quickly. And so they would roll that rock in front of the door and it would really serve a few functions. Number one, it would keep wild animals from going in there and eating the body. That's one part of it. The second thing is that body is going to smell very quickly and this would seal it up. 
And the third one was, in the Jewish faith, that decomposing body was considered unclean. And the last thing you would want to do to a righteous Jew was to put them in a situation where they accidentally stumbled into the decomposing body. And so they would actually close the tomb and they would paint the rock white. Might remind you of a time when Jesus accused the Pharisees of being a bunch of hypocrites, and he said, you're nothing but whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but there's nothing but dead, rotting bones inside of you. This is what the tomb would have looked like. And I think this is really significant for us, and I, and I want to draw attention to it because these guys are hustling to get this job done before the Sabbath comes. I'm picturing them racing to get Jesus into the tomb and to get that rock rolled out of the way because that would have been included in the work as the sun is setting and bringing the Sabbath. What is significant about the Sabbath? The Sabbath was instituted, we first see it in the very first verses of Genesis chapter 2, God has instituted the creation of the entire world. He has created everything that exists. He has created a place for him to inhabit with his people. And then it says on the seventh day, he rested. And when we hear that, we go, oh yeah, he took a break. He was real tired. That is not what the idea of Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 generally uh, are trying to get across to us. The image that it gives us in the original Hebrew is that of a king who had set aside and conquered his territory, and then he rests on his throne. Jesus is laid to rest in the tomb. He is the king who is now reclining on his throne after establishing his authoritative reign. When Jesus said, it is finished, he says it at the very end of the day of preparation, and he rests on the Sabbath. It's a beautiful picture of his authority and the work that he has completed as the king. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you've known someone for a long time. Maybe you worked with someone. You're seven, eight years into a relationship where you're spending 40 hours a week of this person, with this person. And then one day, out of the blue, they just drop casually. You know, like in 1984 when I won three gold medals in the Olympics. And you're like, wait, what? I've worked with you all this time and you never told me that you have three gold medals? You know... That one time that I landed that rover on the moon, wait, what? The surprising reveal where something you thought you knew about something, I have a very good friend that I knew for many years, uh, and we were camping together, and I said his last name in reference to him, and he turns to me, he goes, dude, that's not my last name. I'd been saying that for three, four years. I was a little shocked. When I first... Uh, became friends with Paul, your lead pastor, uh, probably 15 years ago. We went on a golfing outing, um, first time we'd ever been golfing together. And I remember after the round, he kind of sat back and he looked at me and he goes, I got to be honest, you're a better golfer than I thought you'd be. And I said, I kind of was like, I think that's a compliment. I said, what exactly was it that gave you an inclination of what kind of golfer I would be? And he was kind of backpedaling a little bit. Well, you know, you just don't really have a golfer look about you. <laughs> Which is the nicest way anyone's ever called me fat. <laughs> here's, the, here's the best part about it. I actually only shot like a 95 that day. It wasn't even that good of a round of golf. And he was like, man, that was better than I expected out of you. Right? Sometimes there are things that people reveal about them that are a little bit shocking. 
What we see here with Joseph and Nicodemus is just this kind of a turn. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but he was secret about it because he feared Jewish leaders. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, who had earlier visited Jesus at night because he was afraid of what people would think about him. And there is a temptation in this moment to really look at these two men and say, well, were they really followers of Jesus? After all, they weren't obnoxious about it. They didn't squeeze this information into every conversation. They didn't start a fight every time that they had the opportunity. Are you sure that they were really followers of Jesus? We can do this now where we look at people and we put a level of guilt and shame on the way that they live out their faith if it doesn't conform to what we expect them to do. And, and what is tricky about this is we have men like Joseph and Nicodemus here who are labeled as followers of Jesus, but that they're doing it secretly. And you say, certainly that must be a problem. Certainly that's something that has to be addressed. The issue is that the New Testament deals with this issue. The Apostle Paul deals with this issue and gives similar instructions. Paul says to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. When does he say that? He's writing a letter to a church that he founded in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, the letter that's in your New Testament. He's writing them a letter. What's happening in Thessalonica is that the church is being persecuted by the authorities that are there in that place. Both Roman authorities and Jewish authorities are persecuting the church. Some of them are being killed. Some are being martyred. And Paul's instructing with encouragement, how do we keep being faithful in a place where everyone's against us? And it could mean losing everything to be found out to be Christian. What do we do? Here's what Paul says to them. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Paul tells them, it is tough for you, I know. Here's what you're going to do. Here's the strategy. Live a quiet life. Live the kind of life that they can't bash you over the head with your faith because the kind of life you're living is one that they want to affirm because you work hard and you do good in your community. This is, this is challenging for us because what we typically think of is being bold for our faith and yet these two men are hiding their faith and these people in Thessalonica are scared to reveal that they follow Jesus. And he says the best approach in this situation is to be quiet and be steady and to work hard and let your deeds speak for themselves. Now, this is, this is interesting, and it really challenges the way I tend to look at this. There's this idea that exists, and it's, I'm sure it exists in the real world, um, but mostly I know it from movies, this idea of proof of life. So in the movies, whenever the bad guys kidnap someone, then they call to make the ransom request to the family or to the government or whoever it is that they're getting to. And the problem with the bad guy making the request because they've kidnapped someone is when they say, we need $3 billion to release them, how do I know that they're still alive? How do I know that life is there? You could have already killed them and just be trying to get my money. And what you ask for, at least if the movies are trustworthy, which why wouldn't they be, uh, is you want proof of life, meaning I want a photo holding a newspaper or a phone with today's date on it that shows as of this moment, I'm alive. This is a key moment to demonstrate. 
And in this particular moment where we have Jesus dead and Joseph and Nicodemus there in this place, I immediately go to James chapter one. Here's what James says. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's hard for me to think of uh, fewer words that could summarize what we see in this very moment in, this, in the end of chapter 19. Jesus is actually dead. His spirit has left his body. It is the thing that Pilate was concerned about. I don't want you to take him down while he's just swooning or he's fainted or he's just real sick. He's dead. The question is, is the faith of Joseph and Nicodemus alive or dead? And what James tells us is there's one way we can know. It's the proof of life. My process for preparing for a sermon is usually a week or so of reading on these topics and trying to immerse myself in the content and figure out what all this is trying to mean. And then in the lead up to preparing for the sermon, I go on two to three long walks. Uh, they're walks in which I pray and I wrestle with the content and I'm really begging God to meet me on that walk uh, to help me to get clarity about what I'm going to teach and, and what he wants me to say on this. It's, it's just part of the process. And I found it to be incredibly helpful. This week was a, a very busy week for me. And I, I taught um, in our women's ministries here at church on Wednesday morning and Wednesday night. So I didn't actively get to start this process of preparation until Thursday morning in earnest. And uh, we went out for a walk, Rachel and myself. We went to a, a canal down in Southeast Gilbert that we like to walk to, for this purpose. And when we got out there, what I normally will do is I'm, I'm immediately in the text. I'm thinking about it and I'm praying about it. And I'm asking God, what do you want me to say about this? Where, where are we going to go with this? And on Thursday, I was not feeling it. I told Rachel, I said, I don't know. I'm just off. I'm in a bad place. I feel discouraged I feel frustrated, I feel angry, I feel overwhelmed, I, I don't know what's going on. And so my walk that is normally so productive in helping prepare was actually just me wrestling with God. God, would you meet me because I need to see you. I'm not in a place right now where I feel this. I'm frustrated and I, and I don't know where to turn and I, and I, and I can't get my head together and I'm, and I'm walking along and what I'm really asking is for God to show up for me. I'm asking for some sort of a light to show up. And I'm, and I'm two-thirds of the way through my three-and-a-half-mile walk, and I come across this. I don't know if you can see it. It's along the road. I'm, I'm walking to make my turn to continue down the canal, and just sitting there along the turnstile of the road is the crucifix. This picture of exactly where I'm picking up the text here. And I don't know if you can see the sign that is directly above his head, but it says one way. I was, I was, I was stunned. One of the things that's really, um, I mean, if I, I just have to be honest, like as a pastor and I'm trying to help lead people spiritually, I still am dealing with my own spiritual life. I'm struggling to make sense of it, and, I, and I'm wanting moments where God is as real as I believe that he is. And it was on this moment, on this morning, Thursday morning, right here in Southeast Gilbert, that the light broke through to me. 
I felt his presence right there. And he, but here's the thing that's so interesting about this. I attribute that completely to God. I believe that God in his faithfulness met me right there on that corner in Southeast Gilbert. And it, and it was like the cloud that I had been sitting in parted and I was able to think clearly. But something else occurred to me. That thing did not magically appear right there. Some other person in their own personal devotion, whatever they're feeling in their faith, walked to that place and brought that crucifix that they bought somewhere with them and placed it there. They didn't know me and they didn't know what I was going to be struggling with. And we are dealing with two realities at the same time. One person was obedient in a way that they didn't completely understand and God, the supernatural God of the universe, met me in that place, in that moment because of the faithfulness of that person who did not understand what they were doing. This is the tension that we live in as Christians. God is real. He sees you. He cares about you. He wants to break into your life, but he does it most of the time through the simple faithfulness of people doing things that maybe they can't even comprehend how impactful it's going to be or the ripples in which God will use it. And I want to use as we close up three things that I think we can learn from these guys as we move forward. We have three responsibilities, I believe, as Christians that we see demonstrated with Joseph and Nicodemus. And the first one is this. We have to proclaim reality. I'm going to go back to that picture. This picture of Jesus on the cross represents the only way to God. That is what we believe is true. It is what we believe is real. And therefore, we have a responsibility as people who claim to follow Jesus, like Joseph and Nicodemus said in their own hearts, they have to make that reality a claim. Do we see them doing this? I think that we do, because if we look back at the text, let me, let me give you an example of what it looks like to proclaim reality. In Proverbs chapter 31, when people hear Proverbs 31, they think of this text about the wonderful wife, and it is a great text. But right before that, it's talking to the man. And it says, this is what it looks like to be righteous. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly and defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's the instruction that Solomon, the wisdom writer, gives to this man that he's speaking to in Proverbs 31. And in this situation, Joseph and Nicodemus take the opportunity to speak up for the destitute and the needy, the poor. His name is Jesus in this story. Jesus is left without nothing, he's stripped naked, he's beaten, he's spit on, he's mocked, he's ridiculed, he's hung on a tree and left for dead and suffocates there before his mother and his best friend. There is no one in any story that we know that is more poor and needy and destitute than Jesus in this moment. And these two men, we have two examples, one from Luke and one from John. Here's what it says. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph. I said there was a couple other places where he's mentioned. Here's one of them. Although he was a member of the council, he did not agree to their plans and action. He spoke up on behalf of Jesus, who needed someone to speak up for him to judge rightly. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, a follower of Jesus, asked, does our law not judge people without first... Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they're doing, does it? 
He speaks up in the face of injustice. That is the call to a Christian. Your faith might be held deep down inside, but there is a responsibility that we have if we want evidence that your faith is alive. The kind of faith that is alive that James says comes when you speak out in the midst of what is an unpopular moment. The entire crowd is rallying around getting Jesus killed. And these two guys speak up for what is just. And that is the role of the Christian in our world. Now, we also have to deal with the reality of this. Part of our responsibility is to reimagine failure. What do I mean by that? Well, Joseph and Nicodemus spoke up when injustice was being carried out by the legal entity of their nation, and it didn't matter at all. They said what was right, and no one listened. They spoke up to defend Jesus, and they still killed him. And this is the reality of being a Christian, a Jesus follower who is willing to speak up when it's required of you. Sometimes, and maybe most of the time, it'll fall on deaf ears. In it, the fear that these two men carried is probably a fear that you carry because I know it's one I carry at times. Do I say what is right if it is going to put me in a position where it makes other people uncomfortable and might cost me something? Because everything within us and in the world tells you that that is failing. If you are making people uncomfortable, if you are going to lose something valuable, position, power, things, then you've failed. And the Christian gets the opportunity to reimagine failure because that is not what the scriptures tell us about failure. They tell us that saying and doing the right thing in order to bring glory to God is right no matter if it works or not. The prophets lay it out. Jesus does it his entire life and he ends up dead on a cross. Did it cost Jesus? Yes, it cost him his life. Sorry, my, my clicker. Here's what, here's what Joseph paid. We're good to go. Joseph took the body and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn. Joseph was making plans for himself, for his own blessing, for caring for his own, for caring for his own life, for honoring himself. And in this moment, he makes a decision to give up something that would have been held very deeply to him. This was the plan for his honor in death. This is not a moment of failure. It's a moment that 2,000 years later, we sit in a church on the other side of the globe and we talk about Joseph and his amazing faith. And yet in that moment, as he has stepped out in faith, as he has stepped out from the crowd who will judge him, as he challenges the Roman authority to ask for the body of Jesus, as he humiliates himself by being a man of honor and age, taking down a body. And let's be honest, that body of Jesus was not romantic. It was bloody and it was ripped to shreds and he had died and they had punctured his side and blood and water. It was gross. And they took him down and they lovingly cared for him. They made an opportunity to be a humiliated person in their culture and they took it in order to love Jesus. This is what Christians get to do. We get to reimagine failure because failure is not what the world has said that it is. It's through death we find resurrection. It's through losing that we find what really matters. 
This is the opportunity that Joseph and Nicodemus give us and remind us of what we need to do. And they do one last thing that I'm going to leave us with. They introduce recreation. What do I mean by that? I really want to reference what the Apostle Paul says to his, in his letter to his church in Corinth. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. And the old is gone, the new is here. You may have heard this before, but in the original Greek, the translation of that first sentence that would be a more accurate one is this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's not that somewhere deep inside you there is a tiny seed of new creation, although that is true and God will move in sanctification of you. What he is saying is just like where Jesus walked and brought his presence, he brought the kingdom of God with him. If you as a believer, a follower of Jesus are in him, then wherever you go, new creation is there. That is what the scriptures tell us. It's what Paul is reinforcing. When you show up in that place, you have the opportunity to introduce recreation, new creation into the world. And that's what we see here with Joseph and with Nicodemus. They demonstrate that although the evil of the world has been put upon Jesus, injustice, violence, and murder has been put upon him, they will walk right into the chaos. They will be there as agents of the new creation, of the kingdom to come, of the kingdom that he represents as their king. They are there doing new creation work. We just have to admit the temptation. Here's a couple of temptations we deal with in this. Number one, I told you it was a bad idea and you did it anyway. I'm not cleaning up your mess. They could have said that. They didn't. That, that is something that we do. We will oftentimes think that our voice, because we lend it towards justice, gets us out of the responsibility of being agents of the new kingdom, the new creation in the places of chaos that the old order brings to bear. And Joseph and Nicodemus, when giving an option to really display the faith that they've secretly hid inside, they take the option to come out into the open and be representatives of the new creation, the new kingdom in this place by caring for Jesus' body and laying him to rest in honor. There's a quote that a German philosopher wrote, this woman, Hannah Arendt, she, she survived uh, Holocaust, the Holocaust. And she wrote this, which I think applies to this idea for us. It says, even in the darkest of times, we have the right to expect some illumination. And that such illumination might well come less from theories and concepts than from the uncertain, flickering, and often weak light that some men and women in their lives and in their works will kindle under almost all circumstances and shed over the time span that has been given to them. That's the call of the church. We live in a world that encourages you to think that you're going to change the world, that you singularly can make an impact that will change everything. I'm here to tell you that the change that has come already came in the form of Jesus. He lived, he died, he was buried, and spoiler alert, he's ri he rises from the dead. Sorry to spoil that for you if you didn't know it was coming. 
The call for you is not to be the hero that changes the entire world. The call for you as a Christian is to take the little piece that you've been given, the little time that you've been given, the little corner of the world that you've been asked to be faithful in and to demonstrate that the faith that you have inside is real, to demonstrate the proof of life that you have. And it's going to come out in small ways of faithfulness. You might feel like you're uncertain about it, like that faith is flickering, that it's weak. But you bring the opportunity to bring illumination of the new creation that Jesus ushers in as you faithfully represent him in the world that you live in. That's the call of the church. It's the call that we see demonstrated in Joseph and Nicodemus. Let's pray that God would make us faithful. God, we thank you so much for this story. We thank you for the example that we see of Joseph and Nicodemus and the way that they have lived out their faith, that they've put their reputation on the line, that they've given up things that they held as valuable. God, that they demonstrated their love for you by, your, by their care for your body. God, they weren't even given the gift of knowing that the resurrection was true, and yet they're there being faithful. God, I pray that we would be a faithful people. God, I pray that you would allow us to live quiet lives with eyes always looking to be a faithful voice for what is right and just, to be a presence in our world, and to wade into the chaos and the disaster and to bring new creation wherever we go. God, it's the promise you've sent us as agents, as ambassadors, as your children into the world to bring your kingdom to bear under the lordship of Jesus. Help us to do it. We're weak, we're flickering, we're often wavering. We believe, help us in our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.